Philadelphia Grit, Second Grade Racism, and Asian Woman Tokenism. Today on The Pursuit, Jenny Yang. Welcome to The Pursuit, unfiltered conversations with faith leaders about their journey to pursue God. I'm your host, Richard Lee, and today my guest is Jenny Yang. Jenny is the Senior Vice President of Advocacy and Policy at World Relief and sits on their executive leadership team. She's also the co-author of Welcoming the Stranger and is an off-quoted and off-sought-after speaker on all things justice, refugees, and immigration. But in our conversation, we discovered some early experiences that she's had as a daughter of immigrants that helped shape not just what she does, but who she is and how she does it. So Jenny, you grew up in Philly, but now you live in Baltimore. Yes, I'm a Philly girl. But so pick a city. Which city? Philly. All the way. I'm a Philly girl. (laughs) Do do you want to think about it? No, 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 no. Well, it's funny because I will always be a Philly girl. I'm a dire Philly sports fan. Mm -hmm. The Eagles did win a few years ago. Um, Not a few years ago, last year. And we were super excited. So I, I, I love Philly. I was born and raised there. My parents still live there. And it's funny because people actually, when they know where I'm actually from, they say, you're not really a Philly girl because you don't live in Philly. Because my parents live in a town called Bluebell, which is like 40 minutes outside the city. Okay. But I say, well, but I was born and raised in Philly up until I was eight years old. So I'm still considered a Philly girl. But there's something about Philly. It's, it's gritty. There's a lot of heart and passion in the city. It and is I feel gritty. Like it is gritty. And I think I'm kind of like that. It's about being underdogs and, and yeah. we thrive in that kind of- Do you like feel it. like it, it helps shape who you are? Oh, totally. Yeah. Really? I think being in a city where the grit and the, the underdog nature of the city, yeah. um, you know, it's very blue collar in a certain sense, but there's a lot of history in the city, a lot of good music, good food. And I think that was just a part of my identity growing up. And so obviously we moved out of Philly when I was eight and we moved to a town called Bluebell. So people say, you're actually from Bluebell. You're like a Bluebell Blue girl. Bell you're not girl. a Philly girl. <laughs> but um, I, I love the city and I love the people there. And I, I love what the city is all about. I think if you know anything about Philly sports culture, you'll know what the city is really like, which yes. I know people hate Philly's sports fans. I know. And I can understand. I feel like some of the obnoxious. Right. But I feel like some of the mystique about Philly fans like kind of wears off because you guys won the Super Bowl. Yeah, well, it's because we won, but otherwise (laughs) it would be like, oh, you guys are so obnoxious. So did you spend any significant time around the Rocky statue? Yes, I mean, it's one of those things where- Wait, really? Yeah, my line class, we went to the Philly Art Museum. We ran up the steps. We were like doing the Rocky thing. It's really a Philly thing. That whole movie is, yeah, it's about the underdog. It's about someone who works hard and and beats the bad guy. And so I think that whole storyline is one that a lot of Philadelphians live by. It really does embody the Philly spirit. He does. He does. So when you grew up, when you moved out to the suburbs of Bluebell, mm-hmm. what was your life like out there? Well, I remember, I actually remember going to the Philadelphia Public School when I was a little kid. And I remember feeling a little bit daunted because, you know, it was a, like a really loud. Was it a rough school? It was a rough school. And I remember taking the school bus. And I was probably the only Asian kid in the whole school. And then my parents put me in a private Lutheran school. That's like what I remember from my childhood being in the city is going to this private Lutheran school. Yeah. And yeah, it was, you know, pretty diverse, but I do remember experiencing my first instance of racism at that school and like not knowing what to do with it. Um, and so I was there until second grade. What happened? What was the incident? Yeah, we we're all out at recess because the playground is attached to the school. 
And, you know, when you're coming back into the building after recess, you're lining up in your classes. And so I remember I was lined up in my class and we were walking in and this kid in another class basically called out to me, you chink, like go back to your country. Do you know what that meant? Well, I knew it was offensive. Right. And so, I mean, when he says go back to your country, I think I maybe heard the term before, but right. I knew it was like because I was Asian. Right. And I didn't know what to do with it. And so I was eight years old at the time. And so for some reason, when my class got back into the classroom, I like went up to my teacher right before we got all settled down. And I said, oh, Mrs. Omer, um, you know, this guy called me a chink and I like, I don't know what to do. And she was like, okay, um, you know, thanks for telling me, you know, why don't you go take a seat? And so I was like, okay, like that didn't amount to anything, but she didn't do it. What happened? No. So what happened next really kind of transformed. And I still remember to this day. So she sat, so I sat down, she said, okay, class, like instead of doing a regular exercise, we're mm. going to actually talk about um, diversity and why having people from different cultures and countries is a benefit to us. Wow. So she said, she didn't even call me out. And so she said, okay, class, like, what do you think are one of the benefits of being in a family? Maybe that's from a different culture or, or country. And so one student raises his hand. He's like, oh, you get to speak another language. And another student's like, oh, you can, you know, eat different kinds of food. And then wow. another student says, oh, you can go back and visit your family in other communities. So I sat there and I was like, oh my gosh, all these kids are now saying and affirming who I oh am without the teacher ever having called me out. So she basically taught the whole class about the, the value of diversity without ever singling me out as like the cause for that. Right. Right. And so through that experience, I just learned so much about how to address racism, how to address mm. it in community, that it's not about singling out the perpetrator. It's about being on a learning journey together. And I will always remember that because what I found out later is that that teacher, Mrs. Ulmer, became the principal of that school. And I was like, oh, she, she totally did. deserves that. Oh, I love it. And it was astounding to me that she addressed it in that way. Like I never experienced. Did you ever tell her that? No, I didn't. And it's still to this day. I'm like, I should just reach out to her. You think she's listening? I don't know. Maybe <laughs> Mrs. Ulmer, if you're out there, please know that you like changed my life because so then, it was, I was so young and I was so traumatized. I didn't know how to deal with it. And yeah. so she could have easily said, okay, class, this is what happened. This is right. what's wrong. But no, when you have people themselves proclaiming and mm. owning why they think there's value and diversity, then, you know, then you, you actually own it yourself, right? Yeah. You own that value yourself yeah. rather than being taught that from an authority position. And so I think even for her knowing like who I was and having me feel affirmed by my own class, that was instrumental too, because then I didn't feel alone. Yeah. And so it wasn't just her teaching me, it was the class coming around me. And so it was this hugely important lesson. So then subsequent to that, you must have experienced racism again. Oh yeah. And what was, what changed about your, your mind or your attitude about how you process those things as a result of that? Yeah. And so like, I remember, so my family moved out from Philly to Bluebell and yeah. um, I, you know, went to a public high school or a public school system in elementary to high school. And I experienced racism just in different times. I remember I was in gym class one day and we were running around. I don't know why it's always gym. I guess I'm like really making the connection now. Why is it always when like kids are just at a free for all, I guess, but we were in a gym and we were like running laps around the gym. And this little kid would, uh, would say, Oh, go back to your country. Why are you here? Where are you from? Like, go back to your country. It's always, you that. It's always that. Like you don't belong here. And I always remember those instances and I just kind of held it within myself. I never really did anything yeah. um, with that. And so even like with my parents, I don't ever remember telling him or like telling my parents about what had happened. I just kind of processed it myself. I also didn't want my parents to carry the burden that I felt mm. in experiencing racism. And I'm processing this with you because I'm curious myself talking now, like, oh, that's right. I never <laughs> told my parents. Why is that? 
I think it's because I never, I wanted to shield my parents from the hardships I was experiencing. And how old were you? Oh, so I was probably like 11 or 12. So at 11 years old, you're carrying the weight of your ethnicity, mm -hmm. of all people of your race, and you're carrying this weight and you're protecting your parents. Yeah. I mean, this is the first time I'm verbalizing yes. and processing that I've never thought about why I never told my parents, but I guess that was part of the reason. And I think, I mean, even up, up until this day, I still feel that responsibility and burden. Well, clearly, I mean, Look at what you do. Parents. No, but look at what you do yeah. as a job. Like that yeah. started at 11 years old. Yeah. Yeah. But I actually think, I wonder like how many people would tell your parents if something racist happened to you? Would any I mean, when I was growing up, I probably didn't tell my parents because I underestimated their ability to understand it. Uh huh. And that's just me being arrogant, right? Like yeah. just me being stupid. Yeah. Like I wasn't going to protect my parents. Like I got to protect myself. <laughs> like I'm going to, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, and yeah. so for me, that, that wasn't the impulse. Yeah. Uh, but for you clearly at, at such a young age was this protective impulse. Yeah. And I think for my, as part of it is my parents are the most loving, sacrificial, they're almost anomaly of Asian parents. Even like when my <laughs> friends meet them, they're like, oh, they're so Americanized and like how they are, but they're still Korean. Right. And I think because of that, I, I mean, I always felt like I could talk to my parents about anything and mm -hmm. I did, I told them a lot of things, but when there were specific instances like that, I never told them because I think I felt like why burden them with making them carry what I was carrying. Yeah. And I mean, they probably experience racism themselves too. So why sure. share what I'm going through with them? And like, what are they going to do about it? Right? right. At Hopkins, I experienced racism. So what happened at Hopkins? I was eating at a cafe when someone said the same exact thing when I was like walking out. I feel like racists need to get better lines than go back home. I know, home. then go back home. Um, but I think on campus, it's more, um, I don't know, maybe it's like more white privilege, like playing itself out and like how the classes are run. Sure. A lot of people at Hopkins um, came from communities. And this is what surprised me that didn't have a lot of diversity. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of people came to Hopkins and were meeting like Asian Americans or African Americans and Latinos for the first time. Totally. And you know, it's, it's like, are Asian Americans excluded from certain places? And like, those are the conversations we had. It was more of like a systemic thing, even more than like, oh, people are curling racial epithets at me. Right. And so- um, yeah, it was surprising at such elite, seemingly elite institutions of higher education. You would think people would be more cultured or like, right. quote unquote, educated. When in reality, if you're coming from communities that of immense privilege where you don't have a lot of diversity, you're grappling with the same issues. Yeah. You seem to have had this real heart for diversity and inclusion and protection of the vulnerable, that sort of a thing. I don't want to overstate it. Yeah. But what was it about your upbringing that sort of put you on that path? Because certainly there are many people who listening to this were like, when I was in college, I wasn't thinking about diversity. I was, you know, out partying and, yeah. and things like that. I wasn't well, leading. Hopkins was a unique exception. Hopkins <laughs> is like a weird, not weird. I mean, obviously, we're from Hopkins. It's just anyone who's been to Hopkins knows it's a weird school because everyone is just like super intense and like really cutthroat. Sure. I think part of it was my whole identity is shaped by my upbringing with my parents. Mm. And my dad has, he was orphaned during the Korean War and he came to the U.S. He has no siblings. His dad died when he was really young and his mom died when he was like eight years old from like sickness. So he was oh orphaned. Gosh. So what did he do? Where did he Yeah. Live? So he went to live with his uncle, but his uncle was not very nice to him, but he graduated. Well, he became really good at fixing cars. It was kind of a hobby of his. And he like wanted to leave Korea. He did not want to stay there. So he like prayed to God that he would be able to leave Korea. He hated Korea because wow. his dad was killed. His mother died from poverty. Yeah. His uncle was mean to him. He had no siblings. Like there was nothing for him in Korea. And he just wanted to go to a place where he could just make it. He was really good at fixing cars. He won a national car repair competition. The judge noticed. Wait, he won a national? They have these competitions? I know. I was like, I don't 
no. But he won, he won some competition. And one of the judges noticed him and said, hey, I'm coming to America. Why don't you come with me? So he got sponsored by Ford Motor Company to come to the U.S. No and he, way. Yeah, and he uh, he started working at Ford. He became a manager. They started promoting him. But he's like, I want to open this my own business. This is Philly? Yeah. And so he opened up his own business, his own like car repair shop in Philly. He just retired like a few years ago, but pretty much from Monday through Saturday, he was doing that. And he's like known as the best mechanic in Philly. Oh um, my gosh. Like other mechanics, if they can't fix cars, like they'll send it to my dad. Seriously. He would, yeah. He would go to classes to learn more about like cars. And so I was growing up in this family where my dad not only worked hard, but he had like this incredible story of significant hardship in his Absolutely. life. Absolutely. And so I think being exposed to that and knowing what my dad went through and even my mom, but like knowing what my parents went through to even get here um, and knowing their hardship, like I was, I always knew what it took for my family to like even be here. Yeah. So I think because of that, I always felt the sense that not only was it an honor and privilege to be raised in this country, but also that, that my parents experienced a lot. And I know a lot of people go through the same thing. And I just yeah. had a lot of compassion for them, I yeah. think, because of that. And so I think I've always had an inclination to uh, look out for the underdog or people who maybe are particularly vulnerable because I know my parents experienced a lot of that. Like my dad's garage was, um, was robbed like a few times. And uh -huh. one time they robbed, they took all of his like really expensive machines, like the tags and titles, they like broke his windows. Oh my goodness. And my dad had to like spend weeks just cleaning up. Dad never complained ever. And he worked hard all the time. But I think knowing how skilled and talented my dad was, but knowing that he was he was victim to like violence, even in the yeah. US and yeah. hardship and my mom the same way. I think it just made me feel like a lot of people going through this um, probably feel a sense of vulnerability in, in who they are. And yeah. I want to do everything I can to pr like protect or come alongside people in the same position. Because yeah. I know what it was like for my parents to sure. have gone through that. So that has colored like everything about how I, how I feel empathy for like others and even the direction that I'm taking now, it's, it's amazing to see how God kind of like weave that story Absolutely. together. Can you think of another example of that impulse to protect people, to stand up for the vulnerable growing up in high school or college or whatever it may be? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that, uh, so in college, I actually studied abroad in Spain. And if anyone is a student, I would highly recommend just even not a student, like even working, just spending time away in another country being the minority there and experiencing what it's like, I would highly recommend mm. that because it teaches you so much about the world and about who you are and about like the, the realities that are out there. So I, I spent my junior in college studying abroad in Spain. And at that time, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was studying international relations at Hopkins and uh, I went and I remember riding the subway and it was interesting being there because Spain is homogeneous. They have, you know, everyone speaks Spanish. It's like their lifeblood is you're Spaniard or you're not. Right. Mm. So they were having a lot of migration issues because a lot of Africans were crossing the Mediterranean to land in Spain. Yeah. A lot of immigrants from Latin America were also going to Spain. It was at a time, I mean, they're still going through this, but like they're grappling with what does it mean to be Spanish? What right. does it mean to be a Spaniard? Right. And when I was there, I remember there was this young, I was riding the subway to my class or going back home, I think. And there was a young African woman and her child that was like sitting on the subway. And I remember this young group of Spanish teenagers got on the train and they started graffitiing on the, on the walls. Get out of my country, black people. Right in front of this woman. Right in front of this woman. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening. And I looked at this woman and I looked at them. And literally at the next stop, they just got off the, the train. 
But it really bothered me because not just the fact that this racist incident had happened, but the yeah. fact that no one on the train said anything. Not, and I'm not even Spanish, but I'm the one that was the one who went up to her and said, hey, are you okay? And so it, it like really irked me. It bothered me to no end. And I was just so upset about it. Yeah. So that summer, I actually decided to do two things. I volunteered at a, I actually did a lot of research around asylum laws at the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. So I got a research grant. I applied for this research grant and I started like researching asylum. I was like, of what course, is- Of course, because that's, <laughs> what else would you do? So like, well, because I started realizing like for this woman, what would it feel like for her mm. as an immigrant, like to have legal protection? Like how would she, if she's an asylum seeker, gain the legal right to stay here? Wait, so you did asylum law in Spain? Yeah, I, I did like research around it. Like how does asylum laws work? Like how do you apply for For this asylum? country that you're only there for- Yeah, it was, it was like a research project for I Hopkins. See. So wow. I got this grant because I knew I wanted to stay in the summer. And then I was like, well, I can't afford it because I was like, I need money. So I just applied <laughs> for this grant. So I did that. And then, but I also actually volunteered my time at this anti-racist organization called SOS Fascismo. And basically what they do is they do a lot of like rallies and protests yeah. and education around racism in Spain. And so I, it was interesting having those two opportunities because I realized in those two opportunities it summarizes what I feel like is necessary for someone to actually feel a sense of welcome or belonging. It's legal rights and protections, hmm. but it's also a community and a narrative that's built around you that says you belong here, right? And I think sometimes like we focus wow. on one, but not the other. So yeah. like we're so for, you know, reform the laws, reform their laws, reform, and that's really important. But if you have the right laws, but if everyone in your community hates you, are you really going to feel welcome? No. Right. But if you are in an amazing community that's welcoming you, but you don't have any legal protections, then that's a problem too, right? Um, I mean, in the U.S., you can see that with people who are here undocumented, right? And so, so then I realized, oh, this is like something I want to do. I, this is like my passion. I want to learn about refugees. So I graduated from Hopkins and then I actually started working at a political consulting company and I love that. And then I hated it. So I loved it in the beginning because it's fun. I mean, you're traveling, you're meeting elected officials. Sure. I was campaigning, I was fundraising, I was doing all of that, doing cold calls, all the like campaigning stuff that you hear about. Sure. But then I realized as like a young 20 something, I was working like 16 hour days. I was working oh on Saturdays gosh. and all my friends are like going out having fun. I'm like, what am I doing? I'm like traveling, coming back home and all my friends are hanging out. So I uh, decided it wasn't for me. And then my friends at that time, a few friends I knew in the city in Baltimore worked at World Relief. And so they said, oh, you should totally apply for a job at World Relief. And I was like, I'm not going to stay in Baltimore. I'm going to go to DC or New York. I'm not going to stay here. And so I started applying. So I started interviewing a place in New York and DC thinking I'm going to leave. And then I just felt like God was calling me to stay in Baltimore. And really? I think part of it was, um, you know, there's a church that I was really involved with. I was mm -hmm. growing a lot spiritually. Um, and I was like, well, what's, what's in Baltimore? Like what, what opportunities are they here? And then um, I actually didn't hear back from World Relief for a while, but they finally called me back and uh, they said, well, um, I applied for this international programs position because uh, that's all I thought World Relief did. And then they call me and they're like, well, the position that you apply for was, was taken already. We pr internally promoted someone, but okay. that woman left open her position and she worked in the refugee program. Okay. And I said, the refugee program, that's exactly what I want to do. Right. I didn't even know you guys work with refugees. And I was fascinated. I had no idea World Relief worked with refugees like in the U.S. Right. And so I interviewed and I got the job and I've been working on 
these issues for the, like over 15. I've been at Rolly for 15 years now. So when you look back and you think about that time where you applied to a position that you may not have actually wanted mm-hmm. in a city that you didn't really want to stay in. <laughs> yeah. And yet here you are 15 years later and you've made it a career. Yeah. W- what do you attribute to that decision? Yeah. I think a lot of times we always imagine ourselves like doing all these great big things when, especially like in our twenties and, and such. But, um, I just think being faithful in the little things Mm. leads to bigger opportunities for God to demonstrate his faithfulness to you and your faithfulness to him. And I think God's not going to ask you to do greater things for him. If you're not obedient with the smaller things. When I graduated from college, I think that first year was probably one of the hardest years of my life because I thought I was supposed to be doing all these amazing things. And I want to do this and that, and I want to change the world. And yet I'm like, nothing, no one wants to hire me. No one (laughs) wants to give me a job, but I know I'm like amazing. Or you think of these things. And so what I realized is you have to start somewhere and just getting your foot in the door to a place where you can learn a lot and grow a lot will give you what you need to be able to do those bigger things. Right. And so I always say, don't be scared about starting small. Don't be afraid to volunteer or intern someplace. Don't be afraid to get exposure to things that you may never have been exposed to before just to get that experience, even just to know whether or not you're going to like it or not. And so I think this idea that you have to always make it big in the very beginning is obviously, it's a false idea. Sure. You have to start somewhere. And I think the best way for you to position yourself to do these greater things is to take these small opportunities, even though it's not necessarily something that you want. Right. So I wanted to pivot for you as a woman of color mm-hmm. in the American nonprofit space, mm-hmm. have there been challenges by being a woman? Oh, challenges. Yeah. <laughs> Understand. Yeah. I think there's challenges. There's also been incredible opportunities. There are a lot of challenges. I think it's, it's rare for an Asian woman to be in a high leadership position in any nonprofit organization. I also think that the challenges I've had to deal with, and especially working within a constituency that's more conservative. So there are some opportunities that I just don't have. At the same time, I think because of the, what I say and who I am, it's also opened up opportunities for me as well. And I think also because, especially in a lot of conferences and other places, like they are looking for more diversity. They do want women. They want people of color speaking. Sure not just like old white men. And so they'll ask me to come and speak um, because of who I am, but also because of what I share in terms of my content as well. So I do think those, there are unique opportunities in that way, but I think by and large, the challenges in terms of leading an organization um, to value diversity and its practice as well as its structure, Mm -hmm. and then also bringing organizations along in a journey, especially one that's predominantly led by white males to um, understand the value of diversity, I think has been, it's an ongoing challenge, I would say. So for you, your experience as a woman, but then mm-hmm. also as an Asian in particular, I think the impulse to not assert yourself into certain conversations, to not mm-hmm. be confrontational, um, how have you managed that and what ways have you overcome that? I think being an, an Asian woman in a position of leadership, there's ongoing challenges, especially around bringing organizations along in a journey of learning unconscious biases or even microaggressions based on our perceived biases, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think just as an example, um, so at Rove Leaf, we just went through an unconscious bias training where all of our staff and leadership went through it. And it was pretty eye-opening. And I was sharing with my leadership team as an Asian woman in a position of leadership. I've been on the receiving end of microaggressions from 
other people. Just as an example, if I'm talking with someone in a conversation and someone was next to me and he asked me to give him the papers that were in my hand to give to somebody else, but I didn't hear him because I was talking with someone else. So he walks over to me and he like just grabs the paper out of my hand, basically interrupting my conversation with yeah. this other person. And the thing I think is, would you have ever done that to an older white male? Mm. And probably not, yeah. right? And it just goes to show, well, is he doing that to me because he thinks he can because I'm an Asian woman, right? Yeah. Um, and so like in that instance, I didn't say anything, but I said, oh, I didn't hear you. And excuse me, you know, just to say, like I'm talking with someone, he probably was like, what's, what's going on? Right, right. And it's not like he did it like super aggressively, but yeah. I noticed it, right? And I'm sure the other person I was talking with noticed it. So I think to a certain degree, there are things that happen to me as an Asian woman that if there was like a white male in my situation, it would, it would not happen to them. Yeah. Another example is if I'm in a meeting and you know, there's someone on my team who like sticks his feet up on the table and like leans back in his chair, we're all like, okay, that's, you know, whatever is, is happening. If I were to do that, oh, I would get stares around the table because they're like, what's that young girl thinking putting her feet up on yeah, the table? Right. So there's just a lot of, there's a higher standard, I think, for me being an Asian woman sure. in terms of how I'm presenting myself, what I'm delivering. When I go into a meeting, I am very prepared to the nth degree because I don't want to come off as sounding like I don't have good ideas to present or that I'm just there to listen in. I want to be ready and on the ball whenever I'm in a, in a meeting because I know if I'm not present and if not, I'm not, uh, if I'm not articulate or contributing, that people are going to write me off and say, oh, she's that quiet Asian lady, right? Wow. So in any context that I'm in, I, I know that that's the bar that I have to overcome. And the other thing too is I, I, there's other times I've been in meetings where we're in a small group and we're having a good discussion. And at the end, someone will come, you know, we're like, oh, someone needs to take notes. And once there was a guy that said, hey, Jenny, can you take notes? You know, can you like follow up? And I said, no, I'm not going to take notes. I actually think someone should volunteer to take notes. And obviously there's a guy next to me and he, and he picked up on the fact that I was politely bothered. And so he's like, oh, I'll take the notes. I'll, I'll do it for, you know, for us. Right. And yeah. so, so then in those kinds of cases where I know that there's no reason to call me out because I'm a woman or because I'm Asian, I will speak into that and say, yeah. no, no, I'm not going to deliver on that just because you think I should. Right. Again, I think the main question, and even for my team, as we're doing this unconscious bias training that I've repeatedly asked them is just think whether or not you're doing to a person or a woman of color, if you would ever do that to an older white male. And if the answer is no, then don't do that to that individual yeah. or think about what, how you're treating that individual. Yeah. Uh, don't assume certain things. And so I think that the standard I set for myself, knowing that I'm easy to write off, means that I have to put extra effort into making sure that I am fully present and that I'm fully prepared. So in your answer, I picked up on something that it almost seems like you go into those meetings because you're in a place as an Asian woman that many Asian women don't get an opportunity yet. And you, your preparation in that meeting is almost a sense of like, I have to do this for the Asian, for my people. <laughs> for the Asian women of the world. Yes. Yeah. There I is mean, a sense of that. Yeah. I mean, I don't think about it in that way when I'm there, <laughs> but I, I do know like in who I am that I've been written off. And I think in, in a lot of places, because it happens so often, like just like if I'm at a conference and I'm speaking and I'm like one of the few people of color and I'm like one of the few women you know, I'll, I'll end my talk and afterwards people will be like, oh my gosh, she was so articulate or, oh, she was so well-spoken. And sometimes they're well-meaning, 
Other times they're saying it because they did not think that I was going to be articulate. They did not think that I was going to be well-spoken. Right, to their expectation. To their expectation. And so when they see an Asian woman speak well and be articulate and be biblical and be passionate. Without an accent. Without an accent. That's like, whoa, who is that? Yeah. And so that's why if, if I were to go up there and, and fumble and not pronounce certain words or not know the Bible or or know the facts, then it's so easy to write me off because yeah. they, and if people can believe that I can deliver in the way that will be impactful, then I think hopefully they'll be willing to take a chance on, on other people of color as well. I also even even say like, what, what why not have someone who is like a refugee and even if they're not well-spoken, their story is what matters and it can disrupt our even understanding of, well, how can God work? And he uses people who are not eloquent as well. And right. like, let's not limit it to just this expectation. But that is has been a part of my journey. And I think it's probably the, the challenges that a lot of people face is is this this extra hurdle that you have to go through. And I'm I'm sure a lot of women and people of color experience this in organizations that are part of the dominant culture and navigating that is is it's ongoing for us. Sure. Have there been women or women of color specifically that have approached you at conferences? and have expressed some sort of appreciation for where you are? Yeah. Uh, and those are the times that are so meaningful for me. Mm. And so I will, especially, I would say when I, I speak at Christian colleges and universities, um, pretty, not frequently, but every once in a while. And I love talking with young students because I was like, I remember when I was in your position. I mean, these days I can't say that because it was actually a long time ago. But <laughs> You don't before, remember. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember. But yeah. a lot of young people have come up to me and just, oh, I, I like would love to do what you're doing or, or things like that yeah. and have followed up with me and are engaging in world relief generally. But I remember um, I was at one conference and a woman came up to me and she was like crying to me because she was like, I've never seen a woman in your position like speak about the things you're talking about. And it just moves me because I have never seen someone like us kind of be doing what you're doing. Yeah. And she was just so encouraged by it. And I think she was also moved by what I was saying about the call that we have to be public witnesses and advocates for Christ and things like that. Um, but again, I think for her to affirm the fact that there was an Asian American in this position was really astounding to her because she had never yeah. seen it before. Yeah, Like this desire to attain whiteness is something that's inculcated, I think, in the minds of a lot of Asian Americans. And I think when you see an Asian American woman, especially speaking from a platform, you start thinking, oh, it's not just the white people who have all the answers. Right. Asian Americans can have answers answers. We can be problem solvers. We can be people who are creating theology yeah. and solving problems and, and being Christ ambassadors in the world. And I think that's the narrative that begins to shift. Yeah. What is the fine line between, not that you're the expert on this, but what is the fine line between representation and tokenism? Oh, oh my gosh. That's a really loaded question. Well, you can have both at the same time, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I think sometimes you can be representing a community just by having that platform, but then still be the token in that you're the only person of color in an entire speaker lineup yeah. or the only woman in an entire speaker yeah. lineup. So I think that does happen. At the same time, I think it's, you know, if the doors are open for you, what are you going to do with that platform? And are you just going to fit yourself into the mold? Or are you actually going to challenge the people you're talking with? 
you know, a lot of speakers of color I know are now operating in spaces where they do not want to, they're not speaking anymore at places where it's predominantly white mm. and they've made that specific decision. But there's others I still feel like we're called to serve the church largely. And mm. so, um, you know, I do ask when I'm speaking at different conferences, who else is in your lineup? Are there other people of color, other other women? So that whenever I'm somewhere, I'm always trying to open the door or knock on the door for other people of color. And I'm always like, I'll go to a conference and I've, if I feel like I haven't done my job to bring other people of color with me, I'll email the organizer and say, here, hey, these are like 10 people you should consider the next yeah. time. Or, you know, you should talk about this topic because I get a sense of what they, where their inclination is towards. Yeah. And so I will do that almost always whenever I speak at different places. Yeah. And so I think there is a responsibility there to do that. It's hard to shy away from tokenism but if the organizers have good intent in in doing it and their lineup is more diverse than is average or is normal then i think those are steps towards not having it be tokenism but actually having it be a more diverse representative panel of of different points of view yeah do you ever get tired of bearing this weight um i don't know if i get tired of it um i think the older i get the more i realize how much white privilege plays such a significant role in our communities in the United States of America. And the more sometimes I get tired of having to educate people over mm. and over again about why white privilege is wrong, like why, like what white privilege is, what a conscious bias is, and always being in that position to have to do that all the time. So that actually does get tiring. And sometimes I'm, I'm not a cynical person. I think I'm overly optimistic sometimes and overly positive. But sometimes when, you know, I see the same conferences doing the same things over and over again, the same churches or the same thought leaders just saying the same things over and again and not learning themselves, sometimes it's, it's really challenging. Mm -hmm. I think it's fascinating because, I mean, we didn't even really get into the work that you do, mm -hmm. but it, I feel like the work that you're doing and the fact that you are the one doing the work are accomplishing similar goals, mm -hmm. right? That the work of justice, the work of advocating for the vulnerable, while at the same time being an Asian woman mm -hmm. is also, just by virtue of you being in the position where you are, you're also advocating for a vulnerable group of people. Yeah. And I think that my identity being an Asian American woman has given me the perspective and voice to be really good at my job. And it's because I, when I talk about immigrants or refugees, I'm actually talking about it because I know what it feels like to be a minority community. Yeah. And when I talk about, and when I meet other people who have gone through similar experiences, like I know what it feels like. When I hear your story and I think back to your grade school, Mrs. Ulmer, right? Yeah. Standing up, right? For mm -hmm. you and, and sort of giving you that safe space. And I think about how many people that you're doing that for. Mm. And I think about how as a society, we have more people that are uh, able to provide those spaces for more, you know, for different groups of communities mm -hmm. that are vulnerable. It gives me a little bit of hope. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that the more, especially Asian Americans, we can have doing the work of the church and of justice and of marrying those two together, I think is critical. I actually think a lot of, I think people of color in general can be real bridge builders because I think if God's heart and preference is for people on the margins. It's, it's, if it's mm. for people who are poor and oppressed, then communities of color know what it feels like to have experienced those things. And I think the power in our experiences and our stories, I think can position us very well to be able to lead the church. Yeah. And I think um, we have an incredible opportunity to do that. I think the challenge with a lot of Asian Americans is, you know, we're living this quote unquote American dream where we're pursuing 
the same privileges that white people have in our country. And I think it's a concern because we have to take what our parents have sacrificed for us and the experiences of being an immigrant people and use it to expand the table for all. If you spend enough time around Jenny, you can just tell that this idea of expanding the table is her life and her calling. And it's amazing to think about how a second grade teacher changed Jenny's life so dramatically, which set her on a course that has changed so many other lives as well. And it serves as a reminder to me that a small act in our lives can serve to not just change the moment, but through others can change the world. Well, if you want to find Jenny on social, you can find her on Twitter at Jenny Yang WR. And I think one of the best things to do is to just search for her on YouTube and watch some of her videos because what she has to say is just so important. I put a link to her book, Welcoming the Stranger, in the show notes, so feel free to look that up as well. Thanks so much for joining The Pursuit. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at The Pursuit Cast. And finally, subscribe on iTunes and rate and review. Thank you so much for the many people who have already done so. And as we go, remember, you may not know where your journey ends, but you can find God all along the path. So I'm just so glad they won. I mean, that game was perfect. I still like, I was watching reels of that Super Bowl that we won. Like for weeks and months, you know, oh whenever I was down, I would just look at clips of the Super Bowl. Oh, yeah. Every play, every second, it was just so masterfully executed. And the, the cherry on top of the Sunday was that we beat the Patriots. <laughs>